0: This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers
1: with real stories about making a living in music.
0: Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is producer Nick Raskulenix. Nick has produced a Grammy-winning album for Foo Fighters, A number one rock album for Alice in Chains, a number one rock album for Rush, a number one billboard album for Evanescence, a number one UK album for Stone Sour, and many more. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation and any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at WorkingDrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So you'd think that after eight years of doing this podcast that one thing I've learned is people are more approachable than you realize and Nick Linux should be no different and yet when I saw him in person the idea of approaching him just seemed out of my comfort zone but thanks to my friend Chad Patesnick for making the introduction between Nick and I at the Music City Drum Show. So thanks so much to Chad for making that introduction and uh, this opportunity to speak with someone that I've known about for a really long time, obviously has work with Rush and Foo Fighters and so many others. And Nick was just as transparent and sweet and open to speaking as you could ever wish for. So it was really awesome. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with Nick, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with producer Nick Linux.
1: about is when i was in there when i was moving in there there yeah. was this one like big iso booth that really sounded great and his piano was in there yeah and that was kind of like oh this was ronnie's piano uh-huh. Isn't this great you're gonna have this and i was kind of looking at it and looking at the room i was like man this would be a great room to record guitars in like amps and stuff i was like can you get that piano out of here <laughs> and they were just like they, what? it was like oh my god are you serious i'm like yeah i'm not going to use that thing it's like, yeah. I, I'm going to use this room for other stuff. And yeah. the next day I came in and it was gone. They put it in storage. That's amazing. <laughs> then we rocked the fuck out of that room. <laughs> we blew that room up. It was like hovering a foot off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> you moved here in Nashville
0: 2008? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Seven, seven, eight-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so originally from Knoxville, so it probably felt like uh, a you know, it felt more natural in, in some respects. Like you knew what you were getting. Yeah. So. It
1: was kind of like a return to home, mm-hmm. you know, um, moving out to California and being out there for 12 years, almost it was, you know, it was awesome out there, but it it was kind of starting to, I don't know. We started the family thing and having kids oh, yeah. and we just kind of looked at living out there a little bit differently. You know, so we decided to, you know, find a place closer to where we grew up and the grandparents and all that stuff. And Nashville was just kind of the obvious choice. Has it worked out? Are you happy with the? Move? Yeah, it's worked out great. Yeah. I mean, when I moved here, you know, there wasn't really anybody doing what I was doing, huh. which was hard rock and metal bands, mm-hmm. you know, and it was kind of cool to kind of fly under the radar for years. And a lot of people didn't even know that I lived in Nashville, Yeah, you know, because they would, they just wanted to work with me. So it didn't really matter where I was, whether it was LA or Nashville. And back at the back then, back in 2007, it was way cheaper to make a record here. Right? So that was kind of an incentive, you know, Hey, you guys can go to LA and spend this amount of money because this is what it costs to do a record out there. Or you can come to Nashville where everything is cheaper. And the tech is here still. Yeah. And everything's here. There's great studios. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when I first came here, that was a big concern because I was working in LA all the time, you know, and had kind of found five or six rooms that I really liked. So I would just kind of pogo around those rooms and make records in those rooms. So the thought of coming to Nashville is like, Oh my, what am I going to do for a studio? You know, I knew there were studios here, sure, but it's also a very different recording mindset between recording rock records in L.A. and recording, you know, country-based records in Nashville. What is that? It's just a different, you know, there's a different energy. There's, it's a different sound. You know, yeah. big rock drums don't sound like, you know, drums on a Taylor Swift record or, you know, a Keith Urban album or any of those types of records. It's just two different styles. Sure. You know, so I wanted to find a studio that was kind of familiar as far as gear wise and like drum room wise and, you know, elements like that. And I, um, when I came, I came to visit just to like look at studios for a weekend and I went to Blackbird yeah. and immediately I was like, Oh great. This is, this is kind of, this is kind of like an LA studio. You know, it's got big rooms and there's all the microphones and the gear and I met the owner, John McBride, and we immediately, you know, became friends and, you know, hit it off and we had very much the same mindset of recording, you know, which I think was kind of refreshing to him too because, you know, it was I was different. I was kind of coming into town with a whole different, a whole different game than what was happening. I recorded six or seven records there, Stone Sour and Evanescence and Rush and the Ghost Album, you know, just a few that I can remember right now. I remember the Clockwork Angels kit set up in that big yeah. room. So I had that scene happening in Nashville, you know, and it was funny because, you know, when I I was at Blackbird, you know, we'd be doing our thing and when a lot of the country session players would be on breaks and shit, they would all be in, in my studio. Like, (laughs) like, what are you guys doing in here? Oh, whoa. You know, look at all those Marshalls or what amps are you using? Or look at all those mics and you know, Oh killer, you're using this and you're using that. Oh man, you know, that's great. And, oh, we got to go back to our session now. Okay, well, (laughs) you guys going to be here tomorrow? You know, kind of stuff. And I got a kick out of it. It was fun, man. And I got to meet a lot of really cool people. And, you know, a a lot of, I think a lot of the Nashville session players are totally rockers at heart, even though some of them will probably never admit it. Did you ever have a
0: chance to meet a mutual friend of ours, Rob McNally,
1: guitar
0: player? I'm not sure. He's from Columbus as well. So, uh, one of my co-founders of the podcast, Mike Jackson, is here uh, joining me, being support and, and, and hang. <laughs> so, no, Rob's been just doing such great work here, mm-hmm. and actually he's one of the non-drummers we've had on on mm-hmm. the podcast as well. And, I mean, just just an amazing... He played with Delbert McClinton for uh, a number of years and just, I mean, could play just about anything.
1: I've he's met some of the most talented people i've ever met are in nashville it's insane players and drummers and bass players and guitar players i mean just the level that these guys play at is just it blows my mind because it's really different than what i do you know when i'm when i move into a studio i move in for 5 6 weeks and we're we're you know working on 10 or 12 songs over that period You know, these guys will come in and record a whole album in one day.
0: That's what I was going to ask you is just the pace. I mean, were you familiar with the speed in which things are done or typically done in Nashville? Well, in Nashville, it's more
1: of a live-based situation. Mm -hmm. Because the players are so good that you can do that. Yeah. You know, in a lot of rock band situations, we don't really and really do that, do it like that. You know, we mm-hmm. like to spend more time on stuff and, right. you know, maybe focus in on things maybe a little bit more, you know. And, you know, a lot of the players in rock bands, they just don't play like that. So they just, it's not, you know, feasible or fair to try to really compare the two. Sure. Or, you know, put one up against the other because it really is two different, it, it really is two different things, you know. But but both with great results at the end. Of course. You know, are you spending
0: time in pre-production with the bands that you're producing?
1: Yeah, always. It always starts with that. you know. Okay. Usually a week gotcha, or more, depending on how many songs and how long it takes. Yeah, But it's usually us setting up in a room like this with live drums and live amps, and we're all in here playing the songs, and I'm starting and stopping the bands, and, you know, hey, try this or try that, or why is that part there, or mm-hmm. that part's too long, or... Yeah. You know, hey, we need a drum fill here, a drum fill there. You know, we just kind of work through the songs. You know, as long as it takes. Sometimes it's really quick and can take a couple hours, and sometimes it can take all day.
0: We're in your space now, Rock Falcon Studios. Mm-hmm. You're working on a project with a band from New Zealand.
1: Yeah, I'm working with a band called Black Smoke Trigger from New Zealand, and they're kind of a new, up and coming band. Yeah, you know, around that area, and they're gonna they want to really want to try to break out into the rest of the world. Yeah. So we've been working on this record for, you know, a good couple months now and kind of starting and stopping a couple times in between. And yeah, it's turned out great, great band, great players, really killer drummer, you know, hits hard and super, you know, smart about everything and is willing to try anything and experiment.
0: Who's this guy? What's his
1: name? His name's Josh. Yeah. I don't remember his last name. Sorry, Josh. We're gonna um, find him. Yeah, we'll find. We'll, him. we'll have Josh on when he brings a coffee in. We'll ask him. We'll ask him. Yeah. <laughs> right now he's he's getting coffee. Hey, Josh, what's your last name?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, no, uh, if if you say uh, this guy's great, then he is great. You know, and, and that's all I need to know. Every once in a while, I'll come across a drummer in a band who really like is like wow. Yeah. You know, and a lot of times most drummers in the bands I record, I'm lucky, most of them are great. You know, I get to record Will Hunt and Ray Luzier and, yes. you know, all these killer dudes. Yeah. You know, but then a lot of the newer bands I record, you know, don't have guys like that. But a lot of them are great in their own ways. But every once in a while, there's like a standout. This kid is definitely one of them. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. Was there anything about Nashville that was pleasantly surprising?
1: Like, oh, uh, I don't know if it's going to be like this, but... When I first moved here? Yeah. How cheap it was. Okay. <laughs> how cheap it was to live here. In 2008. In two, yeah, back then. <laughs> Not like that anymore. It's like just like LA now. Avoc- you, avocado toast is $27. <laughs>
0: did you know Ray when you moved here?
1: Or did mm-hmm. you get to know Ray? No, I didn't meet Ray until 2015 when I got involved with Corn. Mm-hmm. And that's when we met and Ray lived in Nashville. I knew Ray lived here. Yeah. He had just moved here maybe a year or two before we met. Yeah. And uh, so I knew he was here, um, but we hadn't like crossed paths yet, you know, cause he's always out touring and I'm always in the studio. So it's, you know, it's kind of hard to maintain friendships sometimes like that on a regular basis when, you know, people are doing their stuff. The biggest kick for me out of making all of these records is when the fans dig it. That's the whole point of this. For sure. And I mean, you've always been a fan. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, you know, my role in this is to try to, you know, help guide the band here and there and, you know, maybe bring things to their attention that they may not have thought of to be objective, you know, to push them on performances yeah. and to really get the best out of them. You know, but once we get all that on tape, yeah. We got it. Right. You know, then we give it to the fans. From the very beginning, I mean, it's like you wanted to be a
0: rock star. You played bass. You started your band and then started recording and just getting involved in that. Just to summarize that to, to a degree, but
1: yeah, I wanted to start play, I wanted to play. You wanted to play. I wanted to play. Yeah, I wanted to play in a band. Yes. You know, that's what I wanted to do. I, I love to play and I, I just love to jam with my friends and, you know, play these songs we would write and then all of a sudden it turned into hey let's you know let's try to get a record deal and yeah. it, then it turned into all of that that part of it you know
0: but what i found what, what just interesting and exciting is like mike you guys are you're focused on drums you like drums I love even drums. if you're not a quote unquote drummer
1: yeah where does that where does that where does that come from i it just comes from you know, just growing up and I don't know, just being my ear just has always gravitated mm-hmm. towards the drums and the sound of the drums and the sound of all of that stuff. The cymbals and the toms and the kick drum and the snare just all ringing over each other. And cre- it just it creates this, you know, a drum set isn't a singular thing, even though it's a bunch of things. Yeah. You know, it's not like a guitar. Guitar is kind of one thing. You know, whereas a drum set, I mean, that's like nine things right there. (laughs) We're sitting next to a drum set, I'm pointing at it. (laughs) That's like nine things that you need to make sound like one thing. Well, the frequency range in what you're dealing with.
0: It covers, I mean, from the kick drum to To the cymbal, it's all of it.
1: Yeah. It's the whole deal. You're getting like 20 hertz to 20K. I've talked to drummers that talk about the concept of
0: orchestration and arrangement when you're composing parts. Yep. I apply that
1: to all drum tracks yeah. in rock music. Yeah. It's a performance, it's a composition. It's there's lots of little details. There's lots of little things that you have to focus on and get them to create, you know. I'd love to find out what you've learned over the course of your
0: career about motivating drummers to do what you want them to do and getting the sound, This is a lot, but getting the sounds that you want Maybe what you've learned from drum techs. Let's just maybe just take that for a second.
1: That's a great question. Um, You know, luckily back in the early 2000s and mid 2000s when, you know, I'm having all this great success and working with all these great bands, you know, I was able to have drum techs to be part of the sessions, you know, but that's, you know, since budgets are tighter, lots of bands aren't signed, you know, the landscape has really changed, especially in the last five or six years. You know, I don't have the luxury now because it really was a luxury to have a dude hanging out (laughs) to tune drums all day. I mean, what a great gig, right? Yeah. Changing heads and you're tuning drums and you're drinking coffee and eating snacks and (laughs) cracking jokes and having fun, hanging out with the dudes. And, oh, hey, go tune that snare real quick. Oh, okay, cool. Let me go work real quick. You know, I mean, it's pretty awesome. And when I started working at Sound City, I realized quickly when I was assisting on these sessions, there was always a drum tech. There was always some somebody that just handled the drums, and it was never the drummer. The drummer was in the control room talking about the song with the producer, mm-hmm. or you know, working out the beats with the band, or smacking his knees, had drumsticks, he's beating on the side of the console or the rug on the floor or whatever, you know. And there's always a dude out there changing the heads, making sure everything's right, and you know, talking to the engineer about mic placement, and what kind of symbols we're going to use, and stuff like that. So that kind of takes a load off of. You know, the engineer and the assistant and the producer and the guys in the band. Yes. You know, because that's like super technical stuff. It it gets crazy.
0: Uh, There's so many drummers that don't understand. I mean, I I put myself in this category as well. I feel like I know how to tune things generally. But when I meet a drum tech that knows what they're doing, I'm like, how did you do that? How did you make that
1: snare sound? My snare sound that way. And I noticed that there started to be a consistency from song to song to song, from album to album to album different drum techs. You know, I remember, uh, Ross Garfield, the drum doctor was one of the first drum techs I ever remember seeing, you know, and he would show up, you know, with 10 or 15 different snare drums and three or four kicks and three or four, ver- you know, three or four toms all of the same size, but you know, a Gretsch, a Ludwig, a DW, you know, so there was just all these options and yeah. you know, two or three bags of cymbals. Every symbol I had no idea there were so many fucking kinds of cymbals, back then, <laughs> you know, and then when you put all set all that up in a room, like a recording studio room that's built to record drums in, to record sound in, and then you put up 15 or 20 microphones and you've just put a magnifying glass on that drum set like oh, yeah. you can't ima- ever imagine, mm-hmm. you know, it even standing it standing in front of a drum set or playing it, you know, when you put all those microphones on it, it has to become one thing. Yeah. You know, the snare has to be, you know, just cracking and just has to be right and has to be exciting the room right. And, you know, there are so many elements that start with the guy who's playing them. How hard is he hitting it? Okay, let's go to the next level. What kind of sticks is he using? How thick are they? How long are they? Are they thin? That's going to affect the way the snare sounds and the hi-hat and the cymbals. Okay, what kind of cymbals are we using? What sizes are we using? How are the cymbals tuned? There's notes and cymbals. Mm -hmm. Huge notes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll start drum takes with guys and by the end of the first chorus, i'm like wait a minute something's rubbing with the guitar and the bass it's that fucking symbol mm. that's what it is let's listen to it again okay i'm muting this sounds great turn the symbol back on boom it sounds flat now get a new symbol in there let's get one with a higher pitch mm-hmm. different note in it you know then you go to the drums themselves the tuning of the individual drums for sure what kind of heads are we using yeah right there you know there's 20 different kinds of drum heads mm-hmm. you know and most drummers like heads that are really dead and really thick, A, because they don't like the, all that ring that happens, and B, because they last forever, because drum heads are expensive. Yeah, right. Right? In a live environment, most bands use triggers and samples, so it doesn't really matter what heads are on the drums, per se, because those aren't in the PA, right? But right. making a record, for me, it's all about the sounds of those drums. So it's... It, comes... it sounds like you've avoided triggers at... all. At whenever possible at all costs you know sometimes when you get to the mix you got to put it on there you got to mm-hmm. you got to you got to give the kick and the snare maybe the toms a little bit of love by the time you've put you know the biggest bass sound known to man and <laughs> 15 tracks of huge sounding guitar you know acoustic drums just get swallowed up and you know and with the addition of so much electronics in music nowadays right acoustic drum set it just doesn't have a chance man It doesn't have a chance of competing with those types of instruments when you get to the mix. But you're still willing to fight the fight. Yeah, completely. But I'm also not afraid to put samples on the kick and the snare to make them sound great and poke through at the end if that's what I need to do. Everything has to be as loud as possible. And by the time you get to the end of a recording, the drum set has usually suffered the most because of that. Interesting. In my opinion. That's just my opinion. Yeah. You know? And that's because of the style of music. There's lots of low end. There's lots of punch. You know, things are being tuned lower and lower, which compete with the tunings of the drums. So you've got to find new areas to tune the drums in, you know, and, you know, so back all the way, full circle to your original question about the drum tech, (laughs) I have become the drum tech, you know, because luckily I got to make these records with all these great drum techs in LA and when it you know, wasn't cost effective anymore to fly my favorite drum tech from LA to Nashville, you know, and pay him what he's worth and put him up in a hotel and a car and all that shit. I just, I couldn't really justify putting that in the budgets anymore, mm-hmm. you know, because the budgets are getting smaller and smaller, you yeah. know? So I just started doing it myself because after all these years of watching and learning, I just started doing it and I've been doing it. I'd say maybe the last seven or eight years. Okay. Wow. I you know, and do
0: you have like a snare drum? Like, guys, do you know about this snare
1: drum? I've got a few. I've got uh, um, I've got an old Tama Bell brass from the '80s, of course. which was one. You know, when I started really doing this, you know, when it in the two, late '90s and 2000s, that was again something I noticed by working at Sound City, working with all these A-level kick-ass bands with great engineers and producers. The importance of a great sounding snare drum is just as important as the lead vocal sound. Like, those are the two loudest things in the mix. Lead vocal, snare drum. Snare drums with the lead vocal, nothing happens more in a song than hitting of a snare drum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if any of your listeners have ever counted how many times a snare drum happens, especially in rock music and metal music. But it's like, da, da, it, you know, it can be from da, 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 to fucking, da, 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 you know, just anything. But that snare is always there. So the importance of a great sounding snare drum hit me immediately. So what's like the best kick-ass rock snare drum, in my opinion, a Tama Bell Brass. Yeah. It's like pretty much unbeatable, you know, do you so always use, I, I bought one. So okay. I'm like, okay, killer. I don't have anything really, but I've got a killer snare drum I can bring to the session. You know, and then I got a really good Les Paul. Then I got a really good Marshall head. Then it's like, oh shit, I need, I need an SVT. You know, I got to get a good P bass to kind of get the essential elements of the foundations of all those things. But a drum set is more complicated and more involved than any of those.
0: There's also that element of the drummer themselves. Yeah. That affects all that.
1: All of it. it starts just like, you know, a guitar player or a bass player or a singer. It's all starts with the human element. You know what? What can you do on this kit?
0: To get the sound you're looking for, for these records you're producing, to a young, inexperienced drummer,
1: what is maybe one of the first things you would tell them? Just to be consistent. Be consistent in your playing and in your hitting. Because again, when you're in a room like this, a drum room that's got space and it's full of all these microphones, you know, you might not realize it while you're playing it, but if you're not consistent on how hard you hit things, things like that stick out like a sore thumb in here in a, in a, in a big, exciting drum room, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, be consistent and just learn your, think of a drum set as an instrument. You know, the drum set is an instrument. It's not, like I said before, it's not nine individual things, right? It, it is actually one thing. Yes. You know, and learn how to tune, tune your drums, things like that. You know, pay attention to tuning,
0: you if know. only there was a device that could teach us these things, like a computer of some sort. <laughs> yeah, I think there is.
1: And you know, and back to the drum thing, you know, I've got four or five drum sets, I've got ten or twelve snares, I've got bags of cymbals, I've got a room with more drum heads in it than I'll ever use in the rest of my career. And you know Where is this room? Again, I've become <laughs> my own drum tech because when a guy comes in here to play drums on a record, I don't want him to have to worry about shit involving the kit. Yeah. You know, I usually tell dudes to bring your pedals, bring your sticks. If, if you got a kick ass snare that you think is going to beat that Tama Bell brass, then bring it. <laughs> we'll use it, we'll check it out, you know, but I've kind of got it covered on the rest. I've got a great sounding kick drum lots of Tom's and you know, it's a variety because you never know what's going to sound best with a track, you know, and it's usually never one brand of drums. I mean, this kit we've got set up right here, I think has six different drum companies represented in it. It's, it's creating the whole drum kit. Yeah. You know, we're using a Slingerland kick and a Thomas snare and DW toms and Sabian hi-hat and a Sabian Paragon and a Zildjian
0: crash. Okay, I didn't see the kick drum underneath the, the, the ISO thing. That's amazing. Yeah. I wonder if that's the Slingerland uh, that was built here in Nashville right when,
1: I think, Gibson bought Slingerland. Man, I've yeah. researched this kick drum because oh, yeah? it sounds so killer. And I discovered that um, Gretsch owned Slingerland for a minute. What I discovered was that Guitar Luthiers built this drum.
0: Oh, well, there you go.
1: Because when Gretsch bought Slingerland... They didn't have drum luthiers, per se. Yeah. All their dudes were making guitars. hmm So those guitar dudes built a bunch of drum sets, I think, between 1980 and 1981 or two. It wasn't, they weren't part of Gretsch for long.
0: Interesting. Okay, that wouldn't be the Nashville guy, but, man, that, that, there's some amazing Slingerland drums, but, that, but we're talking,
1: like, late 90s. Yeah. Well, that's probably the same deal. I bet the, the Gibson luthiers built the drums. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Is there um, a hack, a studio hack, uh, a drum hack that you've learned that has been a game changer? Maybe something that a lot of drummers might be unfamiliar with. I mean, there's
1: tons. Yeah. (laughs) There's, you know what an anti-hack is? Uh, What? An anti-hack. No. To where you don't have to use any hacks or tricks at all. Okay. Is to learn how to tune drums. Yeah. Like, look at that kit right there. There's not a gel, a piece of tape, nothing on any of those drums. That's because the tuning is keeping all that shitty ring and all those overtones that people like to start slapping tape on heads and using thicker heads and to try to eliminate that, you know, and I like to use, you know, for snares, I I like to use Remo CS batters because they're fucking, they're really bright. You know, with the mm-hmm. dot in the middle. Yeah. You know, and for the Toms, I, I like to use coated emperors because they're not too thin and right. they're a little bit thicker, so they absorb a little bit of that ring, mm-hmm. you know, but they're not too dense and they, they really speak nicely. I mean. I'm seeing a bottom mic on this
0: Tom. It looks like a 13 rack. Yep. Interesting.
1: Okay. Yeah, I usually mic the tops and the bottoms of the Toms. The Toms? Wow. Yeah. There's a nice. lot of good shit happening on the bottom of Toms. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. You get a lot. I mean, that's where all the low end is. Yeah. You know, when the stick hits the top of the tom, it takes low end space to develop. So by the time, you know, that top head gets hit, by the time it reaches the bottom head, the bass wave is, you know, 10 times what it is up at the top of the the top head where the mic is. That's great. Yeah. So you get both of those in there and the tom yeah. sound huge. Tell me about the kick drum. What are you doing there? The kick is, I mean, it's just a kind of a standard you know, inside kick mic and there's also a PZM in there and mm-hmm. I put a 47 fed on the outside and I use an old NS 10 speaker that I've got a couple of those that we custom made back in the early 2000s. Sure. And, uh, I've been, been using them ever since. Yeah. It's kind of that standard NS 10 thing. Everybody started using. Right. And I right. use that for some sub. So it's four, it's four mics on the kick drum. That's amazing. Dude. Yeah. a, a, a Normal recording kit is usually, you know, usually like 22 tracks, like yeah. 25 or 26 mics. And, I mean, you can already tell it sounds amazing just
0: by looking at it. It sounds great. Yeah. Drums sound great in this room. One more time, what's the name of the band you're
1: recording? They're called Black Smoke Trigger. Black Smoke Trigger. Yeah. And, you know, as far as tricks, man, there's tons. I mean, it's it's so many I'm blanking out.
0: Well, I'll tell you one thing, if, if this helps inspire, the one thing that I've found when I'm tracking a song and I wanna do anywhere between five to 10 passes. I want that consistent snare sound so I can use to. different takes. Yep. Uh, so it has to be it has to come from me, but also if I'm rim shotting, I wanna make sure that that snare stays in tune so I use uh, these lug locks, these mm-hmm. little nylon plastic <laughs> yep. things right around about the three or four lugs so it doesn't detune, especially if it's an older snare drum that is susceptible mm-hmm. to that. So. That's an example of, of, a, of a hack that's worked really well for me yeah. without having to worry about tuning and matching. Because you have talked about working with drum techs that find that snare tone and
1: make sure it's consistent throughout yeah. the, all the takes. Well, that's what I do as a drum tech. I come out here after every single take oh, and wow. tune the snare. You know, and I'm tuning, and also I get, I get a little bit of an advantage too because I'm in there listening to the song through the speaker so I can hear the, the scratch bass and guitars so I know what the notes of the songs are. I can hear the key so I can get the, you know, the key of the song, the, the main note of the song in my head and walk out here and tune the snare drum to that note. Mm-hmm. And I'll walk out here after every take. I'll stop drummers in the middle of takes. You know, if we've lost the tuning by the first chorus, why well, am I going to let this dude play for three more minutes on shit I know I'm not going to use? because yeah. the snare's too, the snare just went south. You yeah. know, all of a sudden it went from crack, crack to bong, You know yeah. that happens constantly. Yeah, I mean when I'm tracking drums, <laughs> I'll probably get ten thousand steps a day just walking back and forth from <laughs> fucking control room to the drum set. You know, and leaning over the dude. You know, I've got like look right there. There's what do you see on that little wooden thing? Yeah, did tuning keys and there's three of them. I have three different ones because I use three different. T- oh, the, you know giving you all my secrets. (laughs) I tune all the drums with different keys because they all feel different.
0: Yeah. One of the keys you have is like a high tension key. That's used a lot in marching. I I
1: love those because you can just spin them real fast and I use those for the, I use that key just for the snare drum because the way that, and and, you know, this quick spinning thing is kick ass, but I mean the, the tuning these drums, when I get it relatively up to the pitch that I want, it's it's all about the feel. Like once I get those lugs to a certain spot, I don't think I'm ever tuning that full three sixty from that point forward. It's little teeny turns. Mm-hmm. And I've got my own method of which lugs I'm doing and like sometimes I'll change a head on the snare drum in the middle of a song and I'll tune it and I won't even hit it before I go in there and we press record. And most of the time it's exactly how I want it because it like half of this is using my ears and the other half of it is using a feel. Right. And that other DW one, that little one I use just for the toms because of the way that it feels and it, because it's smaller and it's got a smaller turn ratio, like that's usually three or four spins, which is equal to one of those big marching key spins. Yeah. Oh, right. So I've got my own, like, thing that I do, (laughs) that I've come up with over the years.
0: So like in the middle of a song, like literally, like you got one take, one part of the song would have one head on the snare and the
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, with drummers like Ray Luzier and Will Hunt, Ray Luzier will wipe out a brand new snare head before you get to the bridge of a song. Oh yeah. So we will stop and I will put a new head on and we'll go back to the first chorus. All right, dude, we're going to start it from the second chorus. We're punching in on the bridge. Boom. Some, not, not every time it works perfect. Oh shit. Hold on a sec. I got to come back out there. I was, it's a little too low or it's a little too high. I mean, you know, when you get comfortable enough with a drum set like that, you have the abilities to pretty much move around and do anything that you want. Mm -hmm. Like for example, this band, the New Zealand band we were just talking about, we tracked all the drums a few months ago and then they went back to New Zealand. And during the course of those few months, it was like, Hey man, I think maybe there's a couple drum tracks you can beat. Oh, you know, and there's a couple fills I think we need to redo and stuff like that. You know, so a couple of the songs we just completely redid and we matched the drum sound from the previous session almost exactly. Good Lord. But then there were a couple songs where it's like, I just wanted him to redo a fill. Yeah. So we just punched into them. Are you keeping track
0: of settings and all that stuff? Yeah,
1: I've got a great engineer. My engineer, Nathan Yarborough, he handles all of the technical side of documenting everything and, you know, hooking everything up and dialing in the sounds and, you know, kind of getting, getting it to where he knows that I like it. Cause a lot of the times I'm in here with the drums. (laughs) I can't be in two places. I can't be out here tuning the drums and changing heads and shit. And in there getting all the levels and shit at the same time, you know, I'd love to talk about what people's understanding of what a producer does.
0: And some of the misconceptions like Uh, what is your definition of being a producer? Because a lot of people are thinking, Oh, he's in, he's engineering. He's in, he's in the control room, pushing the dials. No,
1: that's, that's, I mean, it can be, I do that too. For sure. You know, being, you know, an engineer and a producer guy like I am, I can do both, but it's a lot of responsibility. So for me, I love to have an engineer in the room who can handle all the engineering stuff so that I can work with the band on the songs To me, that's what a producer does. A producer works with the band, with the songs, with the arrangement, with the melodies, with the lyrics, with everything. You're like the fifth or sixth member. Exactly. You join the band. Yeah, You know, the engineers and the assistants and the drum techs don't join the band. They're not on the song level. Mm -hmm. It's more of a technical level, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's huge. Right. 22 microphones, live microphones in a room, all hooked up to mic pre's, all, you know, with various inserts on the channels, various, you know, compression and EQ. There's lots of phase issues depending on where you put the mics. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a massive, massive job, massive responsibility. It's not like hooking up fucking easy drummer and (laughs) hooking up your MIDI controller and picking a drum set and being like, boom, I got drums. Let's record. Yeah, Right. We spend six or seven or eight hours or a whole day just getting the sound before we've recorded anything. Yeah. Getting where they're going to be in the room, you know, and a lot of producers don't want to fuck with that at all. I've seen, I remember producers at sound city, they, they could care less what the drum sounded like. They just want the song. It's all about the song, you know, and then there's some producers who got really into the sound and cared about what the snare was and what the sticks were and what kind of pedals are you using, you know, And a lot of producers don't. So it, 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 you know, it kind of can you can kind of float around both. You know, I kind of like to float around both. You know, I like to really focus on the songs and the band members individually. You know, as their performances and their sounds and what they're bringing each to the song. And I also really get into you know what drums we're using and what amps we're using and stuff. I'm not that interested that much anymore about, you know, what mic we're going to use and what mic pre it's going to go into and what what the routing is going to be and how's the level to tape, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I used to be really really into that. And it was fun and exciting and I learned so much and I still can do I can still do it if I want to, but I've kind of switched a little more over the years to really just focusing on, you know, the songs.
0: I know you've talked in the past about you know, separating yourself from the production to the engineering, just so you have someone else listening, Mm -hmm. someone else
1: doing it. And another thing, it's great to have another great set of ears in the room. Right. You know, right.
0: How much, how much engineering are you doing these days with budgets and stuff?
1: Well, it depends on the project, you know, on the bigger projects I can have, I can have my engineer some, you know, the whole time. Yeah. Sometimes after we're done with, you know, the heavy lifting, which is, you know, recording the drums and you know the main guitars and the bass. You know, sometimes I'll have to cut him loose because there's just not enough bread to pay him what he's worth. Right. To be honest with you. You know, I'm not gonna ask a guy, you know, engineers are already taking a beating nowadays. Right. You know, and I'm not gonna pay a guy who's worth, you know, a thousand bucks a day. I'm not gonna ask him to come and do, you know, what he's worth. And that's what engineers used to get for everybody out there listening. Okay. And that wasn't that was almost the lower scale of how things were. Wow. Like a great engineer 1500 bucks a day, no questions asked, done. That's amazing. Now, you know, I've got to try to get him for whatever I can get him for, but also for what's fair, you know. So I'm not going to ask somebody to be down here and work, you know, a 12 hour day, five, six, seven days a week for what they're not worth, you right. know? So unfortunately I'll have to go up to a certain point sometimes and then I'll have to cut them loose, you know, and I'll just do everything else, you know, myself the rest of the time, yeah, you know, which is usually, you know, overdubs and vocals and, you know, it's not crazy heavy engineering, you know, I'm not setting up 22 mics yeah. at one time to record a guitar amp, you know, I'm setting up a couple, a few, you know, so it's fine. It doesn't take my attention away from the bigger picture, which is mm-hmm. the record itself. Sure. You know, and that really is to summarize that whole thing. I don't want to take myself away from the from the big picture and get caught up on little, little teeny minutiae details. Right. You know,
0: it, it, it feels like you're you're keeping a pace. You're keeping the band engaged yeah. in the process. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Taking on responsibilities so that they can concentrate on the music. Exactly. And then beyond that, you're giving, you're delegating responsibilities so that you can stay on top of what they're doing. Exactly. Like a hierarchy.
1: And well, because the producer's role, you're kind of like the coach of the team. Yeah. You know, the record label is owns the team and they hired (laughs) you to coach the team and go fucking win the, bring the trophy home. Yeah. That's what we're doing here. Yeah. I'm the team leader. The band is the team, but I'm the coach. You know, and as the coach, I've got my assistant coaches, you know, and we're, we're doing this together. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's what, that's how I look at this. If a band tracks me down and they want to work with me, you know, then I owe it to them to give that type of an experience back. You know, Mm -hmm. if that's who I want to work, I want to work with bands that want to work with me. You know, I'm not going to go chase bands down, you know. No, but you kind of did once. I did once with Rush. Yeah. And that was totally one of those things that at that point in my career, I just, you know, I felt so confident that I could could do it. Yeah. That I could actually bring something to the table Uh for them. Yeah. Never meeting them and knowing them or anything. But I guess I just had a, I had the, my balls were big enough at the point to fucking want to go for it. And I did, you know, and initially they said, they were like, okay, cool. Thanks for sending your stuff. We're going to, you know, we, thanks, but no thanks. We've already got somebody. And I was like, oh, I was crushed.
0: I was like, oh, that but you were like, chance. I'm going to just try. What, what, what What's the worst? They can say no. Yeah.
1: Nothing to lose, man. Yeah. This whole, this whole thing, this whole career in the music industry which is the entertainment industry the entire thing is a crapshoot every bit of it every record every everything is a gamble there is no for sure on any of it not one no but but but
0: Nick at the same time your story of pursuing this project with Rush that you wanted and say i'm i'm just like I'm. I've got something to offer. They don't know who I am, but but I've got something to offer. So I'm going to take a chance because this is what I want. And I think a lot of people just aren't taking enough time to figure out exactly what it is that
1: they want. And I th- and I think the I want that you just said. I wanted, Rush to be, just on top of the world and just sounding, like. I guess I just wanted to rush to sound like what I the selfish selfish person in me I wanted rush to sound like what I wanted them to sound like. Yeah. To be honest with you, you know, and when I met with them and we started talking, they were on the same page with me about it. I could, I could just tell by my, you know, I could tell by their reaction to my reaction <laughs> of what they were doing like the demos and things that I heard that they were just as excited, I think, as I was because we kind of immediately formed this chemistry where I was like, you know, the big thing for me was I just wanted to hear Rush be Rush again and not try to assimilate into the music that was happening in 2007. You know, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to hear certain things. And when I heard the demos, I heard them. I heard little specks of them here and there and then the specks started to get bigger and bigger and it started to come more into focus of like, fuck, this is almost it. You weren't afraid to interject. No, I had nothing to lose, man. I yeah. had nothing to lose. I flew up to Toronto and knocked on Getty Lee's fucking front door and went into <laughs> his house and sat and drank coffee with him and Alex and we just started talking and we just hit it off, man. Uh-huh. And I, I really approached it as you know a producer would produce approach it yeah like i'd never heard really heard you guys before or, or whatever you know i think they immediately knew i was a rush you know i was a rush punter as they would say but it, but it wasn't about that i didn't you know i didn't i wasn't like oh my god i'm at getty lee's house holy shit hey can i get a picture like mm-hmm. i was like fuck yeah i'm at getty lee's house let's talk about making an out let's talk about making a record mm-hmm. let's make a record Mm-hmm. that's what it was about. Yeah. It wasn't about anything else. You think they appreciated
0: the fact that you were excited? Like maybe it reminded them of their early career where people was like, look, we're going to do this. I'm going to, you've got the material, but we're going to make it.
1: We're going to, I mean, you know, I, I honestly, man, and yeah. I can't speak for them. Okay. You know, and I don't even want to try to speak for them, but I think that they, your energy, you they excited. got off on the fact that I was getting off on things. Okay maybe that they used to do or, mm-hmm. or would approach things kind of, they saw that I would, they saw my reactions to those things. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, you have to ask them, but I think my reaction fueled that excitement for them to be like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to fucking try this? Let's fucking try it. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, we're all high fiving in the control room when Neil's out there tracking drums, you know, because mm-hmm. we talked about the track and it's like, Hey man, You know, maybe on this take, try this, which is kind of an homage to this. And it's like, you know, well, you think I'm like, hell yeah, you should. That's (laughs) what I want to fucking hear. Right. You know, the fill and the fade out of vital signs right at the end of the fade, which nobody can really hear, but everybody loves. Let's put that going into the chorus. Yeah. Something like that doesn't have to be that exactly, but let's make it feel like that.
0: Right. You know? I think what inspired that question for me was knowing that you were willing to go in and stop Neil and say, "Listen," and he's like, "Wait." His response to you is going, "Wait, no one's ever done this, but okay, I'll
1: do it." And Getty going, "He, he's yeah, they reacted. Like it was fun. It was, I think it was exciting too, and I think Neil loved that idea of you know, because Neil, you know, I think there was there was a big wall around Neil in a lot of ways for whatever the reasons were, you know, he was obviously very, very private. And I think that spilled over into the recording as well. You know, maybe people weren't, didn't feel as, you know, maybe as, maybe they were a little more hesitant than I was about mm-hmm. suggesting things or try this, try that, or, Hey, that was really good, but I think you can beat it. Let's do it one more time from the top type I think stuff. Any established band. I, I mean, I've never had a problem with that, man. I've never yeah. had a problem with it. And at the time I was working, you know, I had made two records with the Foo Fighters. Yeah. You know, that were turned out great. And I yeah. was hanging out with Dave and Taylor a lot. And we were all about drums. I mean, the three of us together, th- it didn't matter if there were fucking guitars and bass and vocals in the song. It was all about the drums. So I had that whole thing behind me and I was, you know, recording stone sour and recording all these bands that, you know, had great drummers. And I, it was just, I was just being a producer, you know, I really approached Rush as, as just being a producer, you know? But it's like the fan thing too. It's like, like you said, you, the selfish part of you, I think paid off because it's like, you wanted to hear certain things. And so that enthusiasm for that and what they were capable of, was like a win-win, you know? You said they fed off of it and you're just like... Well, I think also a producer needs to be able to bring in objectivity To the band that the band just doesn't have you can't have it, and especially when you're a band that's made a bunch of records. Right, if you've made five or six or seven or eight Mm -hmm. records, it's really easy for a band to kind of stray away and want to try new shit because they want to. No band wants to repeat itself, Mm -hmm. you know. But sometimes you get so deep in your career that you you've strayed really far away from it, right? You know, and you've kind of left your hardcore core fans kind of going, "Wait a minute." This isn't what I loved, mm-hmm. not that much anymore. I'm still going to listen to it, and I'm still going to support it, but when I go see and play, all I want to hear is the old songs, you know? I've got two quick questions about, about this, these two, the two records that
0: you did, Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork Angels. Um, do you feel like the ideas that you gave Neil for Snakes and Arrows was the inspiration for him for the first time ever to walk into the studio without prepared drum
1: parts? For Clockwork Angels, I think that that experience definitely contributed to that, for sure. You know, and and when we started Snakes and Arrows, it it, you know, it wasn't right out of the gate. You know, it you know kind of eased into it a little bit, but by the end of it, it was you know, I was out in the room with him for every drum take. You Mm -hmm. know, whether I said something or not. Mm -hmm. I was just out there fucking air drumming and air guitaring and air singing and walking around the room, pacing around the room with a drumstick, air drumming with him, you know. (laughs) So I think, you know, when we were done with that record, man, there was such a comfort already, Mm -hmm. you know, and between the four of us that it was just when we picked up and started doing Clockwork Angels, it was almost like we never stopped, you know. Right. And it was like, I mean, I was so stoked when they called me and invited me back to do the the next record. I mean, they could have gotten anybody. Yeah. Anybody, any fucking producer would jump at the chance to produce rush, Mm -hmm. you know, but they called me back again, which was amazing. And that made me even more determined. To, to make clockwork even better because mm-hmm. I was involved in that one from the very beginning. Okay. I, when snakes and arrows was happening, they, ha- they already had about half the record by the time I got involved okay. and we went back and kind of worked on those songs and then they put new songs together. Uh-huh. I think a perfect example of our energy together is the song far cry. Mm-hmm. Cause that song didn't exist until I got in the picture. Really? And that was me pushing them for an uptempo rock song. That was weird. Mm.
0: That's
1: uptempo that's- rock song with a big hook chorus but also had some cool sideways rush with the mm-hmm. you know, that whole section is what made it. And then the fucking shwing, right. the hemispheres chord yes. was the, <laughs> there you go. There's the homage right there. Yeah, exactly. That's going back to being rush. Totally. So I think that song is a perfect example of, of what the four of us did mm-hmm. together you know whose idea was it to do this the the stick click in clockwork angels that was mm-hmm. that was one of my production ideas of of you know keeping a really live feel on that yeah. song you know that song in particular we wanted it to feel really live and i just you know when i was out in the room with neil and we were tracking the drums for that he he did that stick click every you know he did it he just did it i didn't I didn't ask him to do it per se, but yeah. when he did it, I wouldn't let him mute it and right. I wouldn't let him not do it again. Cause I was like, Oh, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Keeps the, uh, click, 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 keeps the energy up. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, that's obviously something somebody would delete or cut at the mix. Uh, exactly. Oh, you don't want the stick clicks in there. There's a human in there. It's, I just it, thought it was awesome. It's, it's that human. It's that guy. And it, exactly. And one of the cool human elements about that particular um, thing, and that's the song, uh, uh clockwork angels, clockwork right? angels. yeah mm-hmm. the the drum beat in that we really played with a lot of different drum beats mm-hmm. like we we you know we tried a bunch of different stuff on that and the beat that is on the record in both of the verses was one of those experimental beats that had the stick clicks cuz we we weren't even like really going for takes we were just kind of like experimenting i think that's why he did the clicks mhm that ended up being the one on the record, and I only had he only did it that way one time. Oh, really? So, those two verses on that song is an actual one. If anybody is like, Oh, does Neil ever get anything in one take? Well, I've never really seen a drummer do that, to be honest with you. In my 20 years of doing this, that's maybe happened like twice. Interesting, you know. Even Neil Peart plays a song three or four or five times. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what I can't speak for what he did back in the old days because I wasn't there. But on the records I make, we played shit a few times. Sure, you know, but that is one take. Yeah, the verses of that song, and 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 I also remember, you know, it was if you look at those parts, you almost might think, wow, they kind of sound a little sloppy or something. But like and it kind of is. Because it was just off the cuff. It was just him playing. He was searching. But I'll never forget it, man. I was standing, you know, as far away. I was, you know, if he was playing the drums, I was kind of, you know, posted up around this type of area right around here. And when he started playing that beat, I remember looking over at him. and He just had his head down and he had this fucking look on his face. He was kind of gritting his teeth. And I don't know if he was like a little like, oh, fuck this part. You know, I'm going to get it this time. But As soon as he did that, I was like, hold on, stop the tape. That's it. That's perfect. Mm -hmm. That's fucking perfect. Put that on the comp. Mm -hmm. All right, now let's go back to the top and figure out the beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's how we did every drum track on that record. Yeah. Every single one of them. We just worked our way through all the parts. Some of the parts we would record right then and there. Like, oh, that's the part. Quick, let's record it before we forget it. (laughs) Had the guys experienced that before? Do you know? I don't think they've ever done that before. Not like we were doing it. And do
0: you continue that style, that approach? I mean, are you in here with this band? That's like, how I do all of it. That's how was I do that the record. start
1: of it or were you doing that? I've before? been doing that. No, I've been doing it that way forever.
0: Always. Was there a producer or that you watched in the early days? You're like, this is, this is my jam. This no,
1: is. I never saw a producer go into the room with the drummer put headphones on and stand in the dr- room with the drummer for 10 takes or 15 takes before. I do that all the time. I I, I just love to be close to the drum set you know when some guys need that you know when when we've you know done pre-production on a song and the drummer's been playing it a certain way for a long time and then they come in here and I want to hear different beats and different fills and different things all of a sudden that can be like go from like you know two little things to like 30 things yeah you know like hey on this next take I want you to try a different feel going into the chorus. And I want you to go to this symbol instead of that symbol on the crashes. And I want you to do double handed crashes on the bridge. And remember the kick drum pattern we talked about two takes ago in the last chorus. Don't do that anymore. Do this, try this, see what this sounds like. And also you're playing really ahead of the click. So fucking settle down and also watch your consistency on the snare. And let me get in there and tune those drums real quick. Okay, you ready? Let's do another take. Here comes a click. Four count. We're ready? To go. Choo, choo. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. A lot of dudes can't handle that. You know, and sometimes I'll get with a drummer and I'll notice that he's re- kind of struggling with the changes, you know, because some drummers, man, they like to figure it out and they got their parts and they fucking know it and that's it. And they're going to nail them and done, you know. So when you throw a lot of changes at dudes like that, it really takes them out of the game. Yeah, yeah. they can do all the changes, but that's all they're thinking about now. They're not thinking about the feel anymore. Limited bandwidth to, exactly. to take in all the new information. So I can, I'll can, i see that and I'll preempt a meltdown <laughs> by coming in here and putting headphones on and being like, all right, watch me, dude. I'm going to give you some cues. I'm going to point at, you know, okay, here comes, you know, all right, the chorus is coming up. You know, I'll point at that. say, hey, they hit That symbol right there in the chorus, you know, I'll kind of guide like a little rope. That's what I did with Neil. Well, you know, I had already been doing that for years. You, you don't walk in with Neil Peart and all of a sudden you're conducting the drummer,
0: but he handed you a baton. And he said... actually,
1: he actually bought me a, a baton at yeah. some music store in Toronto. He showed up. To me, so he's like, here, boo. So you can conduct me. <laughs> I still didn't use it though. I have, I, I always use drumsticks. I always steal a sticks. So I always steal drummers, drumsticks. Like sometimes drummers will be like, man, how come all my drumsticks are in the control room? Like, cause I'll just grab a stick and I always just walk back in the control and I'll just put it on the console. And there's like, you know, all of a sudden there's 30 drumsticks on the board. Right, right, right.
0: I mean, how do you deal with meltdowns? I mean, how do you kind of keep things moving along?
1: Man, you gotta preemptive that. And that's the kind of thing you get with experience. Of course. You gotta be able to read people. You yep. gotta be able to see when people are struggling. You gotta take breaks. It, but you always have to make people feel confident in what they're doing. I don't beat dudes up. I never walk in here and say, dude, that sucked. I walk here and say, dude, on this next take. Let's try it this way instead of that way. You got to be diplomatic, man. These are people's songs. These songs are their babies. Their parts are their babies, you know, and drummers really hold that shit tight. Not Mm -hmm. all of them. Mm -hmm. Some of them do, you know, I've had many an argument with a drummer about changing a fucking simple little drum beat, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, and you get to the point where you're like, you know what, dude? Okay. We got your way. Try it my way once and let's live with it for a minute and see nine times out of 10, Two days later, dude, I love that drum beat. You were right. Great idea. And it's not about being right. It's not about being right. It's about what's right for the song. And that's yeah. always my response. It's not about me it, me being right. It's about it being right for the song, the right part. That's dog. my dog in this fight. Yeah. And is to push that's the light
0: bulb that goes off. Yeah,
1: is to push everybody individually to their max, man. You know, a lot of drummers don't get really, drummers are like racehorses, man. They don't get warmed up on the first lap the first warm up they get warmed up by the third or the fourth take mm-hmm. you know that's when it really starts to happen yeah you know and and the room starts to get warmed up and they start to sweat you know i'll turn the fucking heat on in the drum room to make <laughs> drummers sweat like live you know like a show yeah a lot of the bands i record that's their world right under lights they get hot they're sweating immediately a lot of dudes play great like that most of them you know, I know when it's a good drum take when the drummer is starting to fucking sweat. <laughs> you know, when I sit down on the drum stool to tune the drums and my ass gets wet from all their sweat. I'm like, OK, <laughs> we're in there now.
0: <laughs> the atmosphere. Just to kind of wrap up a little bit. Do you know drummer Angela Lisi I don't. here in town? OK, mm-hmm. I know she's met you before. I reached out to her. She is a diehard Foo Fighter fan and uh, Taylor Hawkins uh, fan. She had a couple tattoos put on recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, hey, I just want to reach out to you whenever possible. If uh, I know somebody that has an interest in my guest, I might reach out. So I reached out to Angela. I'm going to be speaking to Nick this week. So just real quick, uh, he's like, is he holding up okay after hearing about the news about Taylor?
1: Uh, it feels so recent and almost unbelievable. It's it's still unbelievable. It really is I still I still can't believe it. I still think about him every day. you yeah. know it's you know I had a cool thing with Taylor, you know I was the first dude to record him fully on a Foo Fighters record. Mm. you know every song you That's know amazing. And then the record after that we did it and you know and I got Taylor. He played on, um, I called Taylor to play on the Coheed and Cambria record, you know, so we did, we did a lot of recording together and mm-hmm. we're, you know, we were really tight and good friends and we did a lot of stuff outside of, you know, just recording in the studio, you know, a lot of times, f- you know, f- friendships will transcend just making records. Yeah. You become friends with people and you hang out with them and you do like normal, regular people stuff instead of obsess over drum stuff in the studio. And you know, what's funny too, it's always kind of awkward in a weird way. You get so comfortable with people in this environment. Then when you're out in like a fucking restaurant, it's like, how do you I don't know how to act when you we know? hang out with our families, <laughs> the wives are just waiting for us to talk. It's key. all inside jokes and, you know, music and gear. And st- I'm really lucky that I got to spend that time with Taylor and all the time we did, you know, and you know, doing the rush thing for the hard rock hall and, you know, and getting to record that version of 2112 for the the 2112 box set that we got to do. So we got got to do a lot of cool stuff together, but you know, being friends is, was the best part about all of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't see Taylor a whole lot and we didn't, you know, talk a whole lot in the last few years because, you know, the pandemic and, Mm -hmm. you know, I would see him when the Foo Fighters would come into town and we'd always hang and it was, you know, it was amazing, you know, One of my, you know, cool memory of Taylor real quick was the last time the Foo Fighters played at Bridgestone, maybe four or five years ago, we went back, you know, to say hey to the guys before the show. And I heard Taylor playing drums over in their little warm up room, kind of in the side. And I was like, oh man, they're jamming in there. I'm going to go fucking hang, say hi. And I walked in and it was just Taylor playing by himself. Like all the other band dudes were in the dressing rooms, you know, being social and, you know, Mm -hmm. hanging out and stuff. I guess they had already had their jam that day, but he was still in there playing because he always warmed up before the shows yeah. and Taylor all like Taylor was like a shark. Drummers are like sharks. They have to be moving constantly. They're swimming. They're constantly moving, you know, mm-hmm. RJ, RJ Hale is like that. Mm. One of the greatest fucking drummers I've ever recorded. Complete spaz has to be moving constantly, has to be hitting something, mm-hmm. you know, I have to take drums away from him cause he just wants to hit them. Yeah. Right. Like, no, don't hit that drum. You're just hitting just to hit it, you know? <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I bust into this room backstage and it's just Taylor playing, and all the other guys, guitars and amps and I picked up a guitar and I started playing all my life 'Cause that's kind of one of the only Foo Fighters I know how to play like the actual whole song on guitar from uh-huh. beginning to end. Yeah. And he was playing and and he didn't even see me. And I just picked it up and I started going dun 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 and he was still just kind of fucking and just playing he looked up and he saw it was me and he was like and he stopped and he goes, kick ass and he was like and we played all my life together, just me and him. And it was that was, you know, fuck that was the last time we actually jammed together
0: that's 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 really amazing man i can't thank you enough man i've i've so been looking forward to this yeah this was fun i love Um, to talk about drums yeah it's fun yeah um i just I've, i've been a fan of of your work as so many have and uh and again just making yourself just available and being so open and and kind is really cool it's inspiring that's kind of the goal man we just want to pull back the veil of of the, all these misconceptions that we have about this industry that we love yeah and the thing that we want to do the thing that kind of gets us makes us want to get up every day
1: yeah i mean it's all about music you yeah. know loving music is a very special thing you know and you know it's, it speaks for itself for sure you know for sure do your kids love music yeah, they love music, but they like modern music. I like fucking rap and all that shit. <laughs> it's like my worst nightmare rock metal producer guy, and my kids could care less about what I do. But I torture them with metal all the time. Like in our cars, we've got like, you know, nothing but slipknot CDs and shit like that. So it's like every day going to school or taking my son to football practice leak up last week. I was like, all right, we're listening to Slipknot the whole way to get you pumped up. And he's just rolling his eyes like, oh God, no. And you know turn it down turn it down and i'm just turning it up you know cory taylor's just fucking, like, you know drums drum. are he's like dad stop i'm like never we'll never stop you will one of these days you will turn that's, that's amazing my child yes. but it's three against one so
0: yeah i i i,
1: I hear you man I'm- well it's just like our parents our parents listened to our music when we were kids and they're like, what are you listening to? Mm -hmm. It's I'm there now. I'm that guy. Yeah, that's right. right. (laughs) Don't listen to that. What are you listening to? That sucks. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Nick. appreciate it, man. Hey, thank you guys. It was good talking to you and take care and all that stuff. And awesome. I'm around. Great. Yay. Cool. Take care. So there
0: you have it, my conversation with producer Nick Raskulinics. I want to say thanks to my friend Mike Jackson for joining me in this interview. Uh, note to self, I need to set up another microphone. Mike chimed in from time to time, and it was uh, it would have been nice to hear him a little bit clearer. But, uh, but nonetheless, I appreciate him coming along for that. Uh, stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Larry Floorman. Larry is a drummer, percussionist, singer, and the frontman of the group Them Vibes. He is also the husband of former guest Sarah Tomek, who's an amazing drummer. So look forward to that interview. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane, and hope to see you around. Bye bye.